Hello and welcome back to this special episode of the podcast series that we're doing from the Financial Planning Association Conference. I am joined by Matt Jones. Thank you for joining me, Matt. Great to be with you, Fraser. Now tell the listeners about your claim to fame. Well, I think the one you're referring to, well, probably my only one, frankly, has been co-founder of Four Pillars Gin. If I sound out of breath at the moment, it's also because we're sitting in the middle of the Four Pillars bar and we have been smashed for the last 90 minutes nonstop. So. Yeah, that this has been an amazing experience for those people who weren't here. You have actually been creating cocktails or creating a drink for us to all have a, 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 a sip at uh, behind the t- on the tools, I would say. I made the huge mistake of ending my presentation with a live cocktail demonstration on stage which seems to have attracted quite a lot of people to have that cocktail as that well. That is so not a huge mistake by any means <laughs> so for somebody who has just sampled the, uh, the goods. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, Ten years. Ten years at Four Pillars? Yeah, look, we're ten years of playing with Four Pillars. We, we turn nine in terms of our time on the market on the 4th of December. It was 4th of December 2013 that we launched, but we were toying with it from, I guess, sort of mid-2012, got serious towards the end of 2012, early 2013. We send my two co-founders, Stu and Cam, off on a little fact-finding mission and really, you know, put some money in the bank, put an order down on a still and, you know, things get serious. Yeah, things do get serious. And, uh, and I think probably from a, a point of view, you're entering a marketplace where... There wasn't a lot of boutique gin distilleries around in Australia. Look, there were there were fewer than twenty gin distilleries, and and the majority were probably distilleries that made other things, including gin. So maybe a rum distillery here, a whiskey distillery in Tasmania. So there were there were a few different gin labels. There wasn't really an Australian gin scene. What there was was a, a, a new craft gin movement happening overseas. Hadn't happened here really yet. And frankly, there probably wasn't much demand for it to happen here yet. So there was, you had to be very realistic about, we think there's exciting possibility, but it's not exactly, you know, pent up demand that's just waiting for someone to bring Australian gin to the market. Yeah, this is what the Henry Ford says. If you ask people what they want, they're going to ask you for uh, faster horses or... Yeah, and, and I don't think anyone was going to say at that stage, a great Australian gin. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, that wasn't on the cards. Um, tell us a little bit about that process though, because you had to uh, work through, and as it, from a business point of view, obviously we're talking about gin, but we're talking about a business, right? And a business where the market doesn't exist. So, well... The, the, the craft, I guess the, the high quality gin market existed, but the craft market didn't? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, the high quality gin market was definitely there. It was dominated by Hendrix. There was a much bigger, sort of rather tired old gin market, classic London dry gins. Um, the craft gin scene was definitely growing in the US, it was growing in the UK. And, and I think how you go about building a business, it, it, there's obviously no one right answer. And if you have an impatient desire and need to achieve growth, you can perhaps approach it in one way. We were fortunate in Four Pillars in that we, from the outset, we we wanted to play the long game and play the quality game. And we, we really challenged ourselves to see what would happen if we made something to an exceptional standard where we place craft at the center. And I remember having a conversation very early on with Stu and Cam, my co-founders saying, look, we're gonna be a craft business and craft has no scale limit. There'll be people who will tell us that craft means small and therefore after a certain size, you're not craft anymore. We say, well, it's not that. Craft is just a total commitment to quality. And in theory, you can be a global brand. And there are great examples of global brands that retain that sense of quality at the heart. They're just rare. And more commonly, you see these big brands where quality is perhaps being pushed to one side a little bit. So I don't think our business model is right for everyone. We really prioritized 
product quality and we, we took it slow and you know members of the FPA will be interested that we we put enough money aside in the bank to make sure that we didn't have to get impatient for short-term returns and start running sales promotions because that way lies a very short-termist approach to building a brand but instead we we really sort of prioritize getting the product right packaging the product right getting all those cues of quality and excellence and then over time seeing where can that take us yeah i, I want to harp on this craft idea a little bit longer because craft um, can mean you know small and boutique and, and and doing things but then to scale craft is a whole new story but but i think what you focus on was mastering the craft look i think so I, something I, I i often say the world doesn't need another anything the world needs a better something. There's always a market for a better something. And I think your craft is your opportunity to unlock what it is that you can do or make better. It doesn't have to be everything. It, it might be that you're running a, a financial advisory practice that's just exceptional at client experience. Or you're running a financial advisory practice that's just exceptional at dealing with older people who've not prepared for their retirement and now they're in the middle of it. And that's what you're really good at. Your craft is is that deep, mastery as you say of the thing that's then going to unlock your opportunity to add value i think what that can then happen to a lot of businesses as they grow they start to realize that some of those things that drove their craft are expensive and maybe there are easier paths but that doesn't mean they're better paths and probably in the long run that's going to dilute the craft and dilute the mastery and dilute the value so i think there is a a hard road to growth which is holding on to the craft but ultimately it's surely got to be a more rewarding road to growth yeah i couldn't agree more and um and certainly sampling the beverages tonight there's definitely a reward at the end of it um but before we go there you presented today you had a presentation on stage a keynote to finish the day yep so uh, you know i'm very fortunate i I enjoy speaking and i get to do it a fair bit and and i always see it as my job to hopefully tell a success story because i think four pillars is absolutely a work in progress but it's a really fun one and we've got some runs on the board and it's nice to be able to share that and say look what australia can do but i also see it as my job to connect some of the 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 lessons that we've learned the principles we've followed and 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 help other organizations and other people connect with them because the end of the day most of us are not making gin we're not making cocktails but we are creating something and that something needs to be wrapped in great storytelling and great experiences if we're going to make the most of it. So that's what I, I chatted about today, the, 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 the dual challenge of really mastering your craft, but then recognizing that that alone is not enough. That if you don't then really do justice to the value you create in the stories you tell and the experiences you provide to your clients, then you're leaving value on the table. You're leaving it to chance that your clients will tell the story you wish they would tell about you. And we'll take responsibility for that. Tell them the story and give them experiences that make it almost non-negotiable that they'll go away and they'll 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 preach the gospel of, of your business and, and the experience that they have with you so that was the i guess the the, the lessons i hope that people took from, from today yeah as, as business there's very much those as you said those principles uh across different businesses and 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 whether they're a financial advice business or, or a gin distillery um a lot to learn in this in that in that space tell us a little bit about some of those principles we talked about things like sandwiching peacocks and all these sort of Look, things yeah, in the I'm, presentation so i had a bit of a, a strange route into gin that that started as an economist um moved into politics and ended up in the in the brand space and the the, the the part of the brand world that I was in was was this sort of emerging world of brand experience agencies. And it was a really interesting time. I, I, I entered that world in 2006. So if you cast your mind back, and you and I are probably just about old enough to remember the digital world then, we're really 
we're pre-social media. Facebook technically launched in 2004. Most of us got accounts 2010, 2011. The iPhone only launched in 2007. It took a while for 3G to catch up and put social media in your pocket. So working in the brand experience space in 2006 through to 2012, and fortunately it took me to New York for a little while, we were really at a time when businesses were realizing that the experiences they created would be talked about by so many more people and, and put in the sort of the social media shop window by their customers. And what I've spent a lot of time thinking about then is, well, what are the types of experiences that change how people talk about you, that change how people behave? And Sandwiches and Peacocks is a simple way that I've used over the years to articulate two, if you like, mental models. The, the sandwich model is all about how can you become easier to do business with, easier to buy, easier to, um, to continue to, to transact with, easier to roll over. And you see it from Amazon to Netflix to, to Uber, these businesses that are just trying to eliminate friction because they recognize if they've got you as a customer and they can eliminate friction, you're never going to leave. So if we think as businesses, what, where are the points of friction, pain, annoyance for our clients? How can we sand them away and smooth them down. That's sandwich thinking. The challenge is your, your competitors are probably seeing the same things as you. They're seeing the same pain points and technology is making it easier and easier for people to eliminate pain points. So, you know, for Pillars, we've just invested in a super fancy new customer experience solution that means we can get back to more people with their inquiries faster. Five years ago, that would cost us millions of dollars of tech stack investment and today it's an off-the-shelf solution and it's in the low tens of thousands so sandwich thinking is important but it's easy to replicate which is where the peacock comes in the peacock is my analogy for being colorful and noisy and memorable and i think every brand i mean i think about accounting zero you know did anyone think that accounting software needed to get sexy but zero went well wait a minute people who do the books and do the accounts and look at software every day they'd rather look at something beautifully designed and They've really carved out a niche there. And I think there's room for design, aesthetics, beauty, storytelling to make all of us feel something in any business. And so that's that real encouragement not to, it's not that you shouldn't be focused on quality because as we discussed, it's critical, but don't overestimate how rational people are. Remember, we respond to emotion. We respond to story. We're hardwired that way. And so where can that show up, those peacock moments in your business and where can you create value through that way of thinking as well. Yeah, I, I 100% agree about the the people make those emotional decisions and those are the things that those memorable moments that you create in a business are so important for uh, from consumers to be able to share with others about, you know, not the technical stuff, um, especially in financial advice. Uh, it's about those magical moments that they go, I felt something. And, and often it's, the, the two are actually complementary. You know, so I, I think about why at Four Pillars I've always cared so much about design, photography, packaging, labels. And it's because all of those things give our customers a hint of how much we care about quality and attention to detail. And if I could force them to, to watch Cameron distill a batch of gin for eight hours, they would get it. But I can't do that. And so how do I give them little cues? How do I drop little breadcrumbs to say, look how much we care? It's the same in, in the financial planning space. If, if we want to be trusted. Trust is a feeling. If we want to give our clients confidence that we've got their backs, how do we convey confidence in the typefaces we choose, in the clarity with which we convey information? So the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. We think about what, what's the craft we want to be known for? What's the trust we want to be built? What do we want to be trusted at? And then how do we use things like design or environmental design? If we 
bring someone in for a financial planning conversation and we know we're going to ask them questions about their children and their ambitions and their retirement, how do we create a, a waiting room space that gets people thinking about the right things with the right visual cues, the right environment, the right coffee? I mean, it might sound trivial, but taking care of those details, that's why Apple stores are such incredible places where you and I are happy to spend far more money on a, P on a laptop than we had to spend on the equivalent PC because Apple gives us a feeling of trust and confidence in the hardware and the ecosystem. So, yeah, I, I think that stuff is critical. And it's not, it's not sort of saying craft is not important to say that also those experiences are really important. Yeah, then one of the things I love about your presentation was we did talk about the, the, the sandwiches and, and the peacocks and they were all important, but they always linked back to the core values of, of that you put down in the, at the beginning. Yeah, so look, I mean... I think it gets easier to do all of that when you know why you're doing it. And, you know, we've all heard Simon Sinek talk about start with why. And there's lots of different theories out there about what your purpose should be. Some people would say, oh, purpose is all about bigger pictures, social, higher purpose. How is your business helping to save the world? For me, it's more just about giving yourselves decision-making tools to go, why does our business exist? And why, why will it grow? Why will it succeed? Why will we be valued by our clients? So for Four Pillars, it's all about taking the opportunity that is given to us of making gin in Australia. And that has led us to go, well, if we exist to elevate the craft of distilling gin because we're here in Australia, it helps us decide not to make vodka, not to make whiskey. Because if, if our job is to elevate gin making, then it's probably not to get up one day and go, oh, we've done gin now, let's make something else. But then it also helps you with so many other decisions and investments because fundamentally you've got that clarity of why you exist and why you matter and why you're doing this. Yeah, fantastic. Now, 10 years on from making gin, we also covered up some of the other stuff around sustainability, around the fact that you you know reuse the oranges that come out of yep. the, uh, the vats to make marmalade, all these sorts of things. But that's that's then also evolved in some other stuff within your business. Look, it has. And, and there's always been this sense of never compromise, never compromise on the fundamental quality of the gin. And that meant that in the early days, our sustainability efforts were always about what can we do on the margin? So can we put solar on our roof? Yes. Can we be smart with our water usage? Can we, can we take the, the water that gets heated from our stills and use it to heat the distillery in winter? Absolutely. So let's be smart. And can we take the oranges and the botanicals and turn them into marmalade and salt and chocolate? Absolutely. The game changer, though, was in developing our, our growing distillery. We, we effectively developed the site next door to double the size of it. Um, that's more Christmas gin drinks being delivered. Yeah, yeah. Um, Very happily. And the um, there we were able to make some really big decisions on sustainability. We've wrapped the whole site in this incredible copper fence, a copper veil, which is effectively a close to two kilometer passive water cooling chimney that is saving tens of thousands of liters of water every day. So we've been able to make big decisions, partly because we've got a bit more money in our pockets, partly because we can start with a blank canvas. But the critical thing is always what can we do that's the right thing to do while not compromising the core craft. And one more thing, every investment we make in that space, we try and get a return from it in terms of storytelling. So the first thing we did after completing those things and we, we got certified carbon neutral, we won this incredible accolade at the International Wine and Spirits Competition in London to win their, their inaugural Green Spirits Initiative Trophy. Immediately, we got a camera crew out there with a filmmaker that we love and said, right, make the film of what we've done because we need to tell people about this because it's only when we get the credit for it, we're not gonna distort it, we're gonna tell the truth of what we've done, but it's our job. We've done this thing, it's valuable, 
let's now get the get the, the the return from that. And I think that's maybe the the critical piece that brings it all together. Absolutely. When you've got a good story to tell, you should definitely get out there and start telling. And I think financial advisors are in that definitely that space as well. Matt Jones, thank you so much for coming on the podcast uh, and and for being here at the FBA Congress in Sydney. Uh, I know you've had to travel to be here, and I appreciate you being some time away from your family. Um, thank you so much for for uh, sharing with us all your your words of wisdom. Absolutely. And look me up on LinkedIn, Matt Jones, Four Pillars Gin, and um, always happy to connect and thrilled to be here. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.